Hello, I'm David Scott, the Editor-in-Chief of The Logic. And I'm Taylor Owen, Senior Fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation and a Professor of Public Policy at McGill. And this is Big Tech, a podcast that explores a world reliant on tech, those creating it, and those trying to govern it. When we interviewed Dr. Ellen Jorgensen back in February, the conversation mainly revolved around the gene editing technique CRISPR and the world of do-it-yourself biohacking. But fast forward seven months, and the conversation in the space has changed dramatically. Like everything else, the coronavirus has upended the world of biotech. Dr. Jorgensen is the chief scientific officer at Annika Biosciences, a biotech company that's trying to digitize the natural world, which means doing things like embedding programmable molecules into our food, biological barcodes that can tell us where a head of lettuce came from. In the midst of the pandemic, she shifted her focus. She's now leading research on a new COVID-19 test that can be done in a cup of hot water, eliminating the need for PCR testing machines, hard to come by in some parts of the world. So why are we having a molecular biologist on a podcast about technology? Well, David and I see similarities between the biotech being developed today and the tech being developed in Silicon Valley a decade ago. Just like with the digital technology that was coming out in the early 2000s, biotechnology is evolving rapidly and without much input from the broader public or from government regulators. The algorithms developed in Silicon Valley had serious unintended consequences. Could the same be true for CRISPR and other forms of biotechnology? We sat down with Dr. Jorgensen back in February to see if she shares these concerns. Dr. Jorgensen, welcome to Big Tech. Thank you. Uh, So you're a molecular biologist, and we're hosting a podcast about the way technology intersects with society. We see a parallel between the work that we do and the work that you do. Uh, Do you see a similar parallel? Well, the past 10 years of my life, I've been involved in a movement to democratize biotech, and part of the reason that I was attracted to it was the idea that this technology was moving very quickly, and it was moving more quickly than regulators normally move. And the general public didn't seem to be informed of that. And so a greater engagement with this type of tech has been something that I've been involved in now for the past 10 years. What about biotech deviates from just traditional biology? What makes it technology to you? Well, I think the thing that differentiates biotech from from sort of all of the other tech revolutions is it's so damn personal. So if you can imagine somebody getting upset because a computer hacker stole money from them, that's terrible. But what if somebody got a disease or their health was affected? That's your life. Mm. So I, th- I think that's what runs p- through people's minds. This is, this is my life. This is my health. This is personal. So I'm sure you've asked, answered this question a hundred times, but just stepping back, and uh, for those of us who aren't too familiar with this world, what exactly is biohacking? <laughs> that is a definition that is sort of self-imposed. So it means different things to different people. The way we think of it is biotechnology done in an unconventional space by people who aren't normally engaging in it. So we're doing things that are similar but at 
um, a vastly lower level for the most part to what people are doing in, in biotech companies and universities. But we're doing the same sort of thing. We're genetically modifying organisms that have been worked with since the 1970s that are safe, like certain educational strains of E. coli that are used in high school classrooms on a regular basis. Um, now there's a, another branch of biohacking where people are trying to actually hack themselves. So I'm not involved in that branch. I know a little bit about it. There's been sort of a collision between these two branches recently with a few high-profile people that have gotten into the news. And unfortunately, they've become the face of the movement because what they're doing is very inflammatory. So people who think that they can um, short-circuit the system of, of drugs and, and medicines in the United States by treating themselves with biotech products, that's one area I think is extremely dangerous. In your community of biohackers, how are the activities democratizing? What are they democratizing? The industry or traditional science or kind of the university process or what is it that's being decentralized? So if I want to do an experiment in a lab, there is literally no place for me to go unless I am an employee of a biotech company or I'm enrolled in a university. There's no such thing as lab space for hire <laughs> or uh, just a place that is open to the public for people who potentially can't afford to go into a traditional biotech incubator space, which is very competitive and will cost you $1,000 a month. And some of the most interesting experiments I've seen have been a collaboration between someone who doesn't know science but has a really interesting idea and then a friend of theirs who is a practicing scientist. And between the two of them, they'll start a company. And there's no space for that sort of stuff in the society. When we started GenSpace, had no idea who was going to use the space. We just had this real intuition that it would be something that would be useful. And so um, the people that use the space are everyone from bioartists who want to engage in biotech for their artistic practice to teachers who want to kind of stage some of their lessons and try things out in our space before they, they spend a lot of money on a kit for their classroom. And then the general public, there's this curiosity about it. And I like to encourage that because I think a lot of the anti-genetic uh, engineering sentiment is due to people not completely understanding what genetic engineering is and how it's really touched almost every aspect of our lives at this point. You know, I think Silicon Valley was largely born out of that same do-it-yourself ethos. However, as we've now seen, it hasn't exactly prevented a concentration of power. So, you know, stretching this forward, do you think this could... Uh, be different for biotech, or would we ultimately lead down the same, you know, couple of companies that, that control the market? Well, there's a lot of differences. Everyone loves that Silicon Valley analogy. And actually, the people who started the DIY bio movement capitalized on that heavily. They would say, well, look what these guys in a garage did. But there are a couple of major differences. First of all, biology is not a new field. There are literally hundreds of years of 
research. Number two, computers we built from the ground up. So in a sense, we own everything, right? Biology is, a lot of it is discovered. So there's some democratization in that anyone can discover something if they're lucky enough. And yes, if you have a lot of resources, there's more of a chance that you might discover something. But we still still do see amazing things coming out of grassroots biology. So I think that there's, there's a fundamental difference that makes it a little less prone to that sort of concentration of power. Nature is everywhere. DNA is everywhere. DNA is available to anyone. It feels like, at least in the public discourse, that over the past decade, there really has been a change in the technological capacity to engage with that DNA, though, right? And uh, I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about that and about how gene editing has come into play in this conversation and how much that's changed your work and the discussion of this kind of work. I want to be a little careful here because there's all of this hysteria about how CRISPR, which is one of the main gene editing systems, is so simple that anyone can use it. That's a bit of a myth. Hmm. There are iterations of CRISPR that are easy to use, but they really are available at a level where you're, you're working with a laboratory organism, like a strain of bacteria or a strain of yeast. Then there are uses that are really more inflammatory, like the idea of designer babies. And that's something that, you know, it makes me laugh because if you're talking about engineering an embryo, you have to have a facility where you can handle embryos and implant them. Is anyone worried that people are doing um, that sort of thing in a garage? The likelihood of them succeeding in any way. We still don't know all that we need to know about the simplest bacteria in order to accurately predict how to change its behavior. Usually nothing happens. So I, I think that the, the ramp up is a lot steeper for biotech than it is for just learning to solder something together. I guess I'm, you know, perhaps a bit more cynical of the world. And, and uh, you know, it's not necessarily to me the scientific community itself that could use these tools for harm. It, it's, it's others, right? I mean, it could be a terrorist for all you know. And, and so I guess there's an assumption that's kind of embedded, or it seems to be an assumption embedded in this conversation that, um, there are no people out there with unethical ambitions who can't learn this and use it for sinister means. Is that an unfair statement? Um, there will always be bad actors. That's human nature. You're not going to eliminate bad actors. So whether the stuff is democratized or not, the bad actors are going to find their way to this technology. But you can't suppress this sort of tech. Actually, most of the things that are classified as bioterror, like the anthrax stuff, they came from labs, from professional people. They didn't come from the amateur community. We focused obviously a lot on, on the United States approach, but I'm curious, uh, from a global perspective, how different jurisdictions are managing this, the ethical and regulatory challenges that come with this technology. Europe is a particularly interesting example because they have been 
very restrictive about GMOs in food, and they recently expanded the definition of GMO. So the original definition was taking DNA that was foreign to that organism and placing it within that organism. So taking DNA from a jellyfish and putting it into a rabbit or something like that. Now the definition has been expanded to include any change that's made through the techniques of genetic engineering. And one of the reasons this came about was um, the genome editing system, CRISPR, because it's possible to use that system and have the components of the system completely disintegrate and, and be destroyed and not in the cell anymore. Can you explain what you mean by that? This is going to end up a biology lesson, which is probably going to be boring. But if you put DNA into a cell, there's the likelihood that it might incorporate somewhere or not go away. Uh, there's always a fear that you'll get a, a rare event where something will happen that shouldn't happen. So we figured out how to put the machinery of CRISPR into a cell without using DNA. And so you stick it inside the cell. It does its thing. And then it... it gets chewed up and disintegrates, and it's gone. But the edit remains. And the edit could be um, a deletion. It could be not putting new DNA in. It could be taking stuff out. As a matter of fact, a lot of interesting characteristics uh, in agriculture can be achieved by deleting a gene, like those apples that don't brown when you slice them. So uh, is that a genetically modified organism? if it's just missing a piece of DNA? Well, the EU says yes. Hmm. So their definition is very stringent uh, on food. However, they are gung-ho on genetic engineering for other things. So it, it's, a, it's a very weird, um, almost schizophrenic attitude towards genetic engineering. And you see that in a lot of different countries. They want the industrial technology they want it um, to make new materials, new enzymes. They want to take the, the genes for um, important medical compounds or flavors and fragrances that are in plants that are being harvested to extinction and put them into yeast and brew them up in a vat. And yet uh, sometimes the, the, the laws are very restrictive because when people think genetic engineering, they think food. This is particularly a problem in certain countries in Africa where uh, there's been such a scare around GMO food that um, the scientists that work in those countries that are trying to develop varieties of, say, banana that resist banana blight are being locked out, even though it could save thousands of lives because uh, this is a food crop, a really important food crop. When I hear you talk, it's so it's I mean, it's so easy for me to get excited about what you're talking about and and get into the weeds of it on an incremental basis of, oh my goodness, that sounds fantastic. And then I zoom out and the other side of my my shoulder is saying, wait a minute, <laughs> um, where does this end? And and, and so I, I just wonder how, you know, there's this saying of, are you on the dance floor or are you in the balcony? How you and your community more generally um, balances that, that constant sense of, okay, I'm now on the dance floor, you know, splitting a gene, but now I've got to get up in the balcony and, and assess the wider implications of what I'm doing and whether I'm causing 
greater harm or benefit to, to the world. How do you balance those things? Drew Endy at Stanford calls it the half pipe of Dune. We're going to kill the world. We're going to save the world. We're going to kill the world. We're going to save the world. And, and kind of swinging back and forth between those extremes isn't terribly helpful. But I think it always keeps, um, to use your image, the two, the different, the angel and the devil sitting on your shoulder. You're, you're always thinking about the consequences of your work. I think that scientists often get a bad rap that we, you know, sort of the image of, of Dr. Frankenstein uh, kind of railing at the world that they don't understand him and he's going to do these amazing things, uh, not really thinking about how the world wants to um, engage with those amazing things. I think most scientists are well aware of this. And it can get frustrating at times because if you feel you have something that's really going to help the world and you feel that there are challenges from an ethical point of view that you don't think are particularly valid, um, but other people do, who makes the decision in the end? And to me, that's sort of the crux of the whole thing is who has the power to make the decision and um, how does it get made? I mean, it... Part of that frustration must be how certain news stories around this have dominated public attention. And you always need public buy-in to, science needs public buy-in um, generally. But I wonder to what degree the stories of the Chinese government's use of these technologies. And you mentioned the designer baby conversation, but it feels like that was a real concern with a government that was making a different set of decisions around this than maybe we would in, in the United States or Europe. A Chinese researcher claims to have helped make the world's first gene-edited babies, twin girls whose DNA he says he altered, with a powerful new tool that lets scientists edit the genetic code. How, how do you look at that story and how it affected this narrative? Well, you know, they've never really admitted that this was something that they condoned. Uh, the scientist is now in jail. It, they've told the world that, that they didn't know what this guy was doing, that they didn't condone it. I think it's interesting that they waited until he unveiled it at a major international conference and sort of waited until they saw how the world reacted before they jumped in and said, this guy's a maverick. How do you interpret that? I think they, they, they did know what was going on. I, I think, well, it's obvious that there are, um, there's more opportunity to do research that sort of skirts on the edge of, of Western ethics in China. That's incontrovertible. Um, for Pete's sake, there, there's an article in the Times. There was a guy doing head transplants. On the other hand, who are we with our Western morality to say that it's not good to make a designer baby in a way that's imposing our idea of spirituality on, on a culture that may not feel the same way. Their attitude seems to be that whatever is best for the health of their population um, is, is on the table. And although the specific thing that uh, this particular scientist did was deemed unethical by everyone for several reasons, um, the practice itself was not condemned. Uh, the things that were condemned were, first of all, it was a vulnerable population. Apparently, the couple were uh, of a lower socioeconomic class, and 
probably uneducated and may not have completely understood what he was proposing to do to their babies. Number two, the edit that he made was prophylactic. It wasn't curative. It wasn't the same as getting rid of the sickle cell gene or something that you know is going to result in terrible suffering. And the third was that most people in the area feel that there isn't enough data yet on safety. Uh, and it takes a long time. It's been done on, on monkeys, but the monkeys are not old right now. This is such a new technology. It was just done in a test tube for the first time in 2012. Hmm. Five years later, we edited a human. Hmm. That's an insane ramp up. So, uh, you know, that was a, a big concern as well. That pace is remarkable. I mean, does that, is that in and of itself, does that concern you, that where we'll be in 10 years if that trajectory continues? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's why I like talking about it, to, to make everyone aware that it's happening this quickly. Yeah. And, and granted, part of it is, is kind of something that's peculiar to the CRISPR technology itself, this is a major, major discovery, and it has huge benefits. It's speeding up all sorts of biomedical research. For the first time, we're looking literally at curing things. The first sickle cell patient has been treated where uh, they've taken her um, bone marrow cells and edited them to express fetal hemoglobin to make up for the lack of regular hemoglobin. And it's, it's going really, really well. And now we're giving people like this hope. So uh, there are, with any powerful technology, it's always dual use. You can take a rock and hit someone on the head, or you can build a house. Um, so any technology has that dual use. It's just that the, the dual use can have bigger ramifications in this case. I'm wondering where something like editing life or re-engineering life, we almost have a lowest common denominator problem there, where unless everybody's playing by the same rules, we will head in a, a we will all head down a definitive path. You know what I mean? Well, I mean... Like, if China's playing by totally different rules than we are, aren't we all in, as part of humanity, in that same boat? Yes, we are. I would agree with that. And that does concern me. On the other hand, we've been doing genetic engineering since the 1970s. It's just been slower than the pace that it is now. So uh, this isn't really a big change in what we're doing. It's just an acceleration of how fast it's happening and how efficient we are. And the flip side is we know more than, more than ever what the consequences of it are because we now can measure virtually everything inside a cell and see how the cell is being disrupted I think the thing that concerns me the most is that some of the genetic engineering is going to be released into the environment in the name of uh, things like um, suppressing malaria. So there are several varieties of genetically modified mosquitoes that are, that are in testing phase and have been trialed in places like Brazil, and they can be extremely effective. What I'm concerned with is things like gene drives, which is a variety of CRISPR gene editing that's self-perpetuating. Think of it as a perpetual motion machine for genetic engineering. So once it's in 
a small percentage of the numbers in the species, it can spread and it, it completely ignores the laws of Mendelian genetics. So 100% of the offspring where one of the parents has this gene drive all have the gene drive. So it can spread through a population, particularly one with a short lifespan like mosquitoes within a very short period of time. And here for the first time, we have the ability to potentially wipe out a species. And so now you get debates as to whether or not we should eliminate the um, entire Anopheles species that carries malaria, Zika. And uh, we've never really had that capability before in this type of way. And we're not very good at having those kinds of conversations either. No, it's, we're terrible. I mean, I'm not sure we're even capable of thinking that through, right? No, and the thing is, if you release these mosquitoes in in one town, they're going to fly to the next town. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not like they respect borders and regulations. I, I can't tell if I should be excited or terrified by our conversation. <laughs> well, that's the thing is is I think this sort of thing is equal parts of just exhilaration and terror because you do have this vast capability. In, in closing here, and to, to bring this back to a bunch of other topics we've been talking about on the show, it's I mean, we've been really concerned and in looking into the way certain Silicon Valley technologies were very quickly and rapidly evolved without a lot of thought of the long-term consequence, right? It was all seen as upside. Um, and we didn't put in place guardrails necessarily um, for some of these technologies. And, and now we're starting to see that happen. Um, and, and I'm wondering if you, are there some things that we just shouldn't be doing that you think? And what should those guardrails look like um, if we have the benefit of looking what sort of happened in broader technology spaces over the last decade? Well, again, I think the big difference here is that people have an inherent understanding of the risk of biotech that they didn't have of information uh, in, in silico. I, I think that there's a much greater understanding and a distrust of this technology among the public because it does hit home and because we have seen biomedical things go wrong in the past. So that creates an inherent limitation, you think, on pace of change? I think that creates a, an inherent motivation to to regulate. Uh, I just think that, that the thing that concerns me is if people don't know that it's there, it's their their, their voice isn't going to be heard. So, I, as I said, to to the credit of of a lot of the people working on this, they are engaging in bioethics discussions all the time, mm -hmm. and it's something that's really at the surface of their thoughts. It's not an afterthought. So that makes me feel good. It's, imbe it's embedded in the practice. It is. Uh, as I said, to the extent that it even is frustrating sometimes, but everyone understands that it's 100% necessary. So maybe my question was framed the wrong way then. Maybe it's actually what the broader tech world should be learning from the way biotech has embedded ethics and those considerations in their own practices. I think that would have been good. But, you know, we humans, we're, we're really great at hindsight. <laughs> I mean, we're such a reactive culture. It's terrible. It really is. That's the thing that worries me most about anything is, is that it always seems that 
we never do anything until something bad happens. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> on that, I don't know if that's an optimistic or pessimistic note to end on, but it, I know, but it, it I feels know. like a, a nice place. So thank you so much for talking this through with us. Oh, this has been really fun. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and The Logic and produced by Antica Productions. Make sure you subscribe to Big Tech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week.